Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. From the Milton Metz studio and the radio TV building in Indiana University, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. This week, uh, we're talking to Bloomington's new city council members about what to expect for 2020. You can follow us. That's me, Bob Salzberg, the, uh, from WFIU, WTIU News, and Sarah Whitmire, the news bureau chief of WTIU and WFIU. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition or join us on the air by calling 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you will be talking to Kate Rosenbarger, City Council from District 1, Sue Scambaluri, City Council, District 2, Ron Smith, City Council, District 3, and Matt Flaherty, City Council at large. So thank you all for being here. How was, your you. fir- how was the first meeting? Okay? It was great. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I think good. it was a good, good start. All right. Good. Well, I just want to go uh, from left to right here in the studio, so it's a different order than I, I read, and ask you just to talk about why you decided you wanted to be on the city council and you know what, what is maybe your top issue. So, Sue, we'll sure. start with Sue. Sam- Sue thank Sam- you, Bob, Sam- and thank you again for having me, uh, having all of us. Running for city council in some ways seemed like a natural evolution of some other roles I've had with the city. I've served on the Redevelopment Commission for the city for five years now, and that actually allowed me to be a part of a number of projects, from the Trades District to the purchase of the hospital site um, to Switchyard Park, and all of those touch multiple issues. They touch environmental sustainability, um, the future growth of our city and how we manage that. And city council seemed like an opportunity to do more work in that area and to be of service in that area. Um, priorities that I brought to my thinking as a candidate and now as a council member, it's important to me to promote economic development and economic resilience in Bloomington. Uh, I think a city that is economically healthy has the capacity to support all of the efforts it, it seeks to do. I think our, as a second priority, I think we have an obligation to support our most vulnerable neighbors. Um, we have a formidable uh, network of social service agencies, and we owe them our support. Uh, as a district representative, as a, uh, um, the third is to look at enhancements to District 2. What are the infrastructure needs? What are the transit needs in District 2? Uh, and represent my constituents in that way. And just kind of an overarching goal, and I I would guess it's one we all share, is to promote um, collaborative and cooperative government, particularly between city and county, uh, with a lot of the projects that are on the horizon. Just to set the geography, District 2 is District 2 is the north and near north side of Bloomington. So that would include Ridgefield and Fritz Terrace, Blue Ridge, Matlock Heights, Okay, a lot of those neighborhoods. All right. Kate? Hi, Bob. Thanks. So... I mean, I decided to run for a lot of reasons, I would say, but I mean, the overarching theme, I think, 
would be that I felt like we were leaving people out of the decision-making process and that we were leaving people behind in the decisions we were making. So really specifically there, just in terms of not not looking at our biggest problems and making our decisions through those lenses. So really thinking about sustainability and climate change and then equity and inclusion in our city. So um, I really thought I could get in there and make decisions that would would really progress um, in ways progress so that everyone is on a more equal playing field and then that our city is taking the necessary steps uh, to save the planet. Okay, and District 1 is the west side, right? So yes. So you'd be in the hospital area? Yes, that's yeah. right. The hospital is in District 1, and it actually also borders District 5. Okay. Ron Smith? <clears throat> I uh, wanted to run for city council. Um, I, I ran eight years ago, and I lost. So it's been kind of a lifelong idea to uh, run and be on a city council in uh, Bloomington. I worked for the state government for 30 years in social services. So my interest in was to try to bring my advocacy role <clears throat> for people um, of all, all walks of life, people with disabilities, the elderly, and uh, bring that experience to the city council and uh, try to be helpful and this is a great city, and uh, I, th- I think we, the more vulnerable people, we have to make sure we <clears throat> don't forget them. Mm-hmm. Um, we're doing a lot of development, doing a lot of infrastructure. That's all great. It's all necessary, but um, I, I want to focus on the lens of looking at it for helping people and making sure we prioritize people. Mm-hmm. And District 3, your area? District 3 is Park Ridge East. It's on the east side, Park Ridge East, and it goes up towards, uh, uh, encompasses the new hospital site, which is really interesting with all the traffic on the bypass, and um, goes up, uh, touches almost Griffey. Um, okay. So, And Matt, you're an at-large representative. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's the whole city, of course, and thanks again for having us on today. Um, in the last couple of years, uh, I was retooling um, a former career and skills, skill set as an attorney um, into wanting to work on a policy, uh, policy needs in, in our community and have a kind of a more of a public interest uh, aspect to what I was doing. Uh, so I was back at uh, the O'Neill School here working on degrees in environmental science and public affairs, um, master's degrees, which I just, just finished up uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, working mostly on energy and climate change policy. Um, and I anticipated that would take me to the nonprofit sector or working for government, whether municipal, state, or federal. Um, and I'd gotten involved um, in kind of advocacy around a few certain issues uh, in the context of transportation and the built environment here in Bloomington and was frankly just a little disappointed in some of the outcomes of those decisions. I didn't think we were doing a great job uh, prioritizing equity in our decisions in the built environment or prioritizing climate action and resilience. And of course, we are, as most people know well, we are at a very unique and, and difficult and troubling time here in 2020 in the context of the global climate crisis. So uh, I believe, and, and you know, I was studying and working on uh, policy matters related to the fact that we, we simply can't make decisions the same way we've always made them. We have to bring a new approach and be creative in finding uh, sustainable, inclusive ways to move forward. And um, 
that's sort of what led me into deciding to run for council. Uh, and so, you know, as part of that, then when I ran, um, climate action and resilience was certainly part of uh, my platform and the conversation, as well as the, the way that overlaps with, with social economic justice and equity in Bloomington. I think those solutions often go hand in hand. Uh, there's been a you know, pretty robust discussion over the last year about how to enhance access to transit in our community and how vital that is for, for folks who uh, either cannot afford a car or whose car breaks down. Um, for instance, and that is, is uh, as well as just having that as an option for people who, who would like to choose it, but, but it's not viable for them right now. But, you know, at the very least, getting the full Sunday service um, and ideally uh, greater uh, frequency of, and, and, and footprint of coverage as well for transit. So that's just one example. Um, and I think that has, you know, strong social justice elements, but also strong climate uh, action elements to it. So that's uh, part of the lens I bring to will bring to council and why I ran. Uh, the other thing I'll mention is that uh, I think having an inclusive and accessible city government is really important. Um, I mentioned it quite a few times uh, that I think it's important for council members to have regular constituent meetings and really seek to engage and bring new voices to the table. To that end, I'm, I'm having constituent meetings once a month at City Hall as well as once a, once a month uh, on IU's campus trying to get uh, our student population more involved in city issues and city politics uh, since they do make up about half of our city. Most of you have talked about this idea of inclusion in city government. Is there a particular area you've seen a problem that you think um, is an area that's that's ripe uh, for some action to, to fix it? Mm-hmm. Just people getting any, left behind. Yeah, any of you. Yeah, I don't I don't know that there is any one topic um, per se that lacks this voice or that voice. But I guess the way I think of it, um, and maybe several of us found this while we were campaigning. A lot of citizens have an interest in being involved, and as residents of a neighborhood, they care about that issue. But when it comes to working with council or working with different branches of government, they're not even sure what questions to ask yet. And so I think the constituent meetings, I'll be among the council members who hold those as well, I think that's an opportunity to offer background that they might not get elsewhere um, and help them ask more informed questions or questions that are relevant to them. Uh, so that's kind of the lens through which I look at the need for more constituent meetings and, and more connection in that way. Who were you thinking about, Kate, when you were talking about just not leaving people behind? So... I mean, I, I'm thinking about marginalized people, low-income folks, right, and I mean, people of color in general in this community. Um, one one example is that you know the city decided to spend fifty million dollars in TIF funds on parking garages, and TIF funds should be used for the public good, right, to improve quality of place. A third of low-income people do not own cars, so how is that benefiting the people that we really need to help, and that right that we really need to help? Can, yeah. can we talk a little bit more about the parking garage since you brought it sure. up? Um, just this week, we did another story that the city is going to retool it, its plans a bit and try to resubmit them. I mean, where do you all see this this heading? When is this just going to be done and we're going to see construction of a new I, garage? I, I worry that it's going on and on and it's uh, probably does, it's not doesn't probably have a good effect on the business downtown and and you and I who and everybody who goes down to eat, eat at the restaurants and and see the, the theater, uh, I think that that's worrisome. I don't want it to, to continue on. I think coming to some conclusion and moving forward is imperative. This is what one is of those issues, just to, just to say, it's one of those issues where, you know, Bloomington is a community where there are nine members of the city council, all Democrats, but there's a variety of opinions on what should happen. It's not like all the Democrats on the council are in lockstep on, on some of these issues. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I mean, there there are 
Kate, you you were pretty outspoken about this. Matt, you were too, right? Yeah, I can say a thing or two. Um, first of all, if we had pursued the repair option uh, on the garage, which was viable and, and something we could have done, it would be open right now. It would have been open again by now. So, of course, the city's run into some trouble um, with how they've decided to pursue that. And I think, yeah, in the coming weeks, we'll, we'll figure out exactly what that means. The latest I heard is that the administration would like to uh, pursue an eminent domain case still without – uh, by, by removing the, the non-residential commercial um, element from the ground floor. And I, I mean, that's not in line with our own city code. And I think it's, it's a real missed opportunity to, for one block from, from this, you know, this downtown square to have an entire block taken up by, by the storage of, of vehicles. So we have code for a reason that tries to create a more vibrant uh, space downtown for the pedestrian realm. Um, and for business. Um, so there's these things we're balancing. Uh, I do think, obviously, parking is important. Many people uh, do drive and would, would like to drive, and that's, of course, okay. Uh, I think people should be able to find a parking spot where they're going. Ideally, on the block, <laughs> they're going to. That's why parking meters are important, so that you don't have uh, folks parked there all day. Um, so pricing has a lot to do with, with having adequate and available parking, and that's really where um, there's been some disagreement, I think, with the administration, at least and, and myself. And, and some others is that uh, exactly how to price it, how much taxpayer money we're, we're kind of throwing at, at what I would call parking subsidies. So figuring out that right balance, I do think it's important, um, even if we're removing uh, the amount of public subsidies for, for parking, that we still have adequate protections for lower wage earners, for service industry workers, for instance, who might be working downtown, for nonprofits uh, who rely on volunteers. Those things need to be adequately guarded against. And we do that already um, with Ordinance 1811 that was passed two years ago. But there's ways it could be improved. Um, and the city's parking commission, of course, is working on these things as well. But it's a yes, a complicated issue with with a lot of uh, different viewpoints, for sure. It is a complicated issue. Mm-hmm. The, the one of the things that there's an interest in having uh, retail on the ground floor of a lot of buildings, including apartment complexes that have been built, and some of them stand empty still. And so it, it is a complicated thought process. Do you want to take those out, <clears throat> and then you have a dead cityscape? streetscape where you're walking around. So downtown, you probably need the retail spots. But in some of the other complexes that are out um, towards the old Rogers development, they're empty. And I don't I don't know what's going to go out there because uh, there's a lot of people that live out there. Um, but it, it's, it's a challenge to get those all full. Mm-hmm. I think that in a way, the parking garage is is one of the best examples recently uh, of the notion that the big idea, the big decisions we make as a city, not what to name a street or some small thing like that, but the 40 and 50 year decisions that we make are always a function of multiple issues. They can never just be about the environment or just be about economic development, job creation, or just be about traffic. Um, as council members, we have an obligation to to think about and blend all those issues into our decisions. Um, and I, th- I think the 4th Street Garage is a really good example of that dilemma. So, Let me offer our, our phone numbers to our listeners again. If you want to join us on the show today, we're talking with the four <laughs> new members of the Bloomington City Council. You can call us at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also reach us at news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. Any additional comments on the garage? Yeah, Kate? I have one comment, and it's touching on the, the perceived parking problems, right? 
parking is an interesting thing that people, in a way, think in driving, that you should be able to drive somewhere, you should be able to drive there quickly, and you should be able to find a parking spot very easily. The way parking should work is that if someone is looking for a spot, there is a spot. So in a way, there's always one, like if we're talking about surface parking, street parking, there should always be a spot available in a block. But when someone finds that spot, they feel lucky, like, oh, I'm glad I found this last spot. But really, that is the system working as it should, that you were looking for one and you found one. So it's 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 just an interesting thing that in a way we need to sort of talk about how available parking should be and what it means when you find that spot, right? Like that, that that's the system working properly. Well, I, I have ahead, one more comment I want to make about who's being left behind and in relation to what issues. Um, the, the transit, of course, is, role, is all part of parking and, and streetscape, et cetera. But uh, individuals who are of lower income have a really hard time using a transit system. It's somewhat of a regressive structure. And I don't know, maybe maybe there should be some better way to subsidize people who are using the transit to go to Department of Family Resources on the west side. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah. what is happening with transit now? There was a study underway, right, where they were thinking about redoing some of the routes. Can you all talk about that and how you see that playing out this year? Matt? <laughs> uh, sure. Yeah, so Bloomington Transit has been uh, undergoing, over the course of the last year, um, a route optimization study. So they're in the final, some of the final stages of that now. Um, and that was looking at the same pool of resources. No change in funding. What can they do to optimize their service? Looking at frequency and coverage, maybe trying out some, some newer things like microtransit, uh, which is where uh, there's a certain footprint where you can kind of call in almost an Uber-esque or a rideshare-esque, a true rideshare uh, type of model. So they're, they're experimenting with some of these things and trying to optimize routes. Um, inevitably, that means if there are some changes, some routes that people have relied upon may change also, and kind of uh, folks who, who've used a route may struggle if that changes. So... Um, that's one question. The second aspect that I think is related is sh- should we, and I think there's an ongoing community conversation about this right now, and this is something that honestly the parking garage conversation helped precipitate, is should we invest more, should we invest local uh, tax dollars in the transit system? Uh, our friends up in Marion County have done this uh, in the last couple of years. They passed a transit-specific local income tax, and they are now, they developed a really great um, policy and, and, and set of proposals. The the red line that just opened up, bus rapid transit up there, is part of that, the first, first uh, phase. So uh, the fact is that federal and state funding for transit has been stagnant or declining, um, or certainly not increasing over the last decade or so. And uh, we struggle, you know, here with our transit system to have adequate service. Again, I mentioned we have full Sunday service. Uh, That limits the jobs that people can get who rely on transit. These are things that I think are really important sustainability and equity decisions. So I think the second piece of that is we probably should put some level of public dollars, uh, local public dollars, into the transit system to create a a more sustainable and and just system. I think one of the other things about transit, I know, you know, we talk a lot about the fact that the bus line doesn't go to Ivy Tech, which is a, mm-hmm. an area. And I know that that was part of, I know it was part of, uh, you know, Mayor Hamilton's whole idea about annexation is we'll annex these areas and then we'll have, be able to provide city services in, in these areas. How do you see that playing out? Do you think we'll get, you know, bus lines to certain targeted areas that may have been in the annexation plan? The annexation plan is, you know, in the courts right now. Are there areas where we could you know, improve on the transit system? Mm-hmm. 
I think most of us have heard some feedback from constituents about about that very issue. Um, I've heard Ivy Tech as one of the goal areas for, for increased service or shuttle service. Uh, I've heard Crane. Right. I'm trying to think what else we've heard. Uh, Cook, for sure. Cook. And Cook, of course. Yeah. Cook mm-hmm. and Ivy Tech, I yeah. think of as same. geographically the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, again, I, there are multiple issues in play here, but I think the reach of this transit system is is one issue. I think frequency, as I talk with residents, is going to be right, right behind that. Um, if you have a single parent with two young children who needs to get kids to daycare and then need, needs to get to his or her job, and the bus comes once an hour, as it does to my neighborhood, Route 1 up on the north side, it's really hard to rely on that consistently for transit. Um, so I, I think your questions are, are, are great because I think in some years 2020 is going to be the year of public transit uh, as we start solving some of those problems. So. Yeah. Well, go ahead, Kate. I think it's worth noting that um, the the red line that Matt mentioned, if if I is it correct that that was that was funded by TIF dollars? No, a local income tax, I believe. Oh, well, there might have been some TIF investment in the capital infrastructure. I'm not sure. The one in Indianapolis. Yeah, but they also do have a local income tax that is right. devoted to transit. So oh, yeah. local income tax and potentially TIF dollars. I mean, we could. We have the opportunity also to use TIF dollars for capital investments for our transit system. And those are tax increment financing dollars. Mm-hmm. So can you explain a little bit about how those work? Sure. Uh, <laughs> he knows better than I yeah, do. Yeah. I mean, so, uh, so uh, you have a certain area where a TIF district exists. Uh, in, in this case, I think it's one that covers most of the west side of Bloomington, um, the footprint of, of the one I'm thinking of that was used for the parking garages. Um, and uh, you basically, it's, it's uh, you bond... It's bonding capacity through tax increment financing, um, which means you set a certain point in time when the bond is issued, let's say the year 2020. uh, After that year, any incremental growth in the tax base for that area, everything above that, that, past that point in time, above that um, line goes to pay off the bonds, uh, whereas everything that was um, already existing in that tax base and below uh, is continued to be used for general funds or whatever other, um, paying off other, other bonds or Whatever the case may have been, so it's it's kind of this. You draw uh, a point in time and say the additional incremental or marginal gains in taxes that we have as this area grows, we will invest uh, to pay off these these bonds. So to simplify for somebody like me, I mean, basically, it's it's, it's a, another f- uh, pocket of money that can be targeted toward mm-hmm. something. And I think right? I think that's an that's important true. point yeah. too. The redevelop. <laughs> I'm served on the redevelopment commission for the city, uh, and we actually make decisions about tax increment financing. Mm-hmm. We decide where it goes. Um, and I think we've talked in terms of allocating existing resources. How can we do it best? Good. We should ask questions like that. Um, but to my way of thinking, I th- we all have an obligation to ask, where are the other pots of money? Uh, TIF money can be used to purchase a vehicle like a bus, mm-hmm. but it can't be used to maintain it. All right? So let's look for another pocket of money. Um, that can be used for that purpose. So, so I think as we grow this pie um, – We'll find that we might be able to respond to more of these challenges. Okay. Yeah, and in transit, we're all there's also another um, resource. A rural transit is out there that is attached to the Area 10 Agency on Aging, and um, they serve people that can go in and out of the city. They just can't duplicate the city routes. Um, it's really uh, a well-used service, and um, I would probably say underfunded. So that would be another interesting. Um, uh, idea to keep into the mix when we're talking about 
uh, working with underserved populations. I can already see we're not going to have nearly enough time today. We're get, we've hit our halfway mark, so we're going to take a really short break, and then we'll, we'll be back to talk about a lot of other issues. You're listening to Noon Edition. Okay. <laughs> Cut okay. From the Milton Met studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live, and you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe now at WFIUNews.org. Well, welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. We're talking with the four new members of the Bloomington City Council today, Kate Rosenbarger from District 1, Sue Scambolori from District 2, Ron Smith from District 3, and Matt Flaherty, who is an at-large member. If you have questions or comments, give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Matt, you want to just finish that answer about Cook and uh, Ivy Tech? And yeah, very stuff. briefly. You had asked about um, whether the city transit system, Bloomington Transit, will be able to serve uh, areas outside the city footprint. And right now, that's not possible through provision of city code. It's my understanding. But it's something we could change. That's within our power to change. It just would simply be uh, the city and the county government's coming to an agreement about exactly what that would look like. We serve some additional area, so the county pr- would presumably need to pay uh, pay the city or Bloomington Transit for some of that service. But it's just finding out how to price that adequately and getting it done. I think at least I personally have energy to do that. I know there's some county council members who do as well. Okay. We've had uh, some questions that have come in during the week, and there's also another question that Sarah's going to ask in a minute. But one of the questions is, is kind of personal, but I, I just wanted to bring it up because since somebody asked, and that is, so Matt Flaherty and Kate Rosenberger, you have a kind of a connection between with Kate's sister, right? So do you want sure. to explain that? Yeah, and I think, I think um, well, first of all, uh, Kate and myself, uh, we met in law school 10-plus uh, years ago, so we've been friends since law school. Um, and then a few years back, I started dating Kate's sister, uh, ultimately married her. Her name is Beth Rosenberger. She works for the city. She is in the planning and transportation department. Uh, she's not the department head, but she is a, a kind of mid-level manager, I suppose, in the context of, of planning services, long-term planning. Uh, I think the question specifically asked uh, how I or Kate would handle uh, that conflict. Correct. Uh, and, and here's what I'd like to say, I guess, specifically, is conflict of interest is a specific thing. It is statutorily defined. It is defined in city code. And what it means is a direct or indirect financial interest. Being related to somebody or having similar viewpoints or being friends with someone is not a conflict of interest. A conflict is a financial – well, a potential conflict is a financial um, interest. And uh, – there are particular uh, – there's guidance on how to address that, where it exists. In my case, because because my wife and I do, of course, have a shared financial interest, um, where that would come up is in the context of the budget when we are voting on salaries. Uh, this is not unprecedented. In fact, um, two other council members, um, one currently and one in the past, have had um, – 
in one case a, a spouse and in the other case a sibling uh, who were actual department heads at the city. Um, and if a potential conflict exists in that case, uh, again, a financial conflict where um, you know we're talking about a salary as part of the budget hearings as a whole, um, I would either recuse myself um, or state the potential conflict and explain why I think I can make an impartial and unbiased decision anyway. So that is the potential conflict. Uh, it will, you know, we'll always be sure to address that when it exists. Um, there's also a provision in code. We talked with, with our council attorneys just the other day about this, and there's a provision in code about nepotism, which has to do with direct supervision if something changes uh, after the point where somebody's elected. Um, but Council's role and its decisions, including over budgets, does not count or qualify as direct supervision. So the fact that um, my wife works for the city of Bloomington, along with you know 700 other people, uh, is not. Which I, I say that just to make the point that it's probably two percent of the non-student working age population of Bloomington works for the city. It's not unlikely that we're going to have um, folks who who have these kind of relationships at times. But I wanted to be very specific and clear about um, what a conflict or potential conflict is and how it should be addressed. And there, there are forms that council members have to sign mm-hmm. if they, to declare any conflict of interest, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a pretty standard yeah. operation, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I just wanted to clear that up, and I sure. appreciate it. Yeah. Kate, did you want to say anything? Or? I mean, I think Matt covered okay. it pretty well. Okay. okay. Before we leave the topic of transportation, Charlie asks about how the city could encourage electric cars and electric bicycles. Um, and he asks, is more, more charging stations and parking areas, how does that fit into the solution? Mm-hmm. Well, I am not a proponent of free parking. However, Hawaii has a regulation that if you have an electric car, you get to park at meters for free. So it really just encourages folks to have electric cars. I mean, that's a pretty small thing, but an interesting way that they do it way over way over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about this issue I, of not having charging stations? There are so few charging stations, it seems like, in Bloomington. Mm-hmm. I think you bring up a good point and that um, – uh, the Redevelopment Commission worked on the parking, well, multiple parking garages. And one of the things I figured out over the last few years is it's not enough to be conscious of a need for something that will fight climate change and then tape it on top of an existing project. I think there's a lot of value um, in these resources and these tools being baked into projects. So, for example, um, when the 4th Street Garage passed the RDC prior to passing council, um, we actually did something that we have not done in my memory, and that's usually we are the money people. We, The Redevelopment Commission allocates funds for something. Um, in this case, we actually built in design features. We required a certain number of charging stations, a certain number of bike lockers and bike stations. Um, and I think... That approach needs to continue going forward. We can't just add things on to projects. We need to bake them in from the beginning. So one of the issues that, that came up twice in the questions that were sent to us, uh, again, the, the, with the UDO, the, the plexes issue was, was pretty um, controversial. And the, the city council, current city council, or last city council actually voted uh, against having the plexes in the core neighborhoods. These two questions both ask, you know, will the new council bring this up? Is this a done deal? Will the new council bring it up? So right now the the new UDO has been finalized, but there's still a lot of work to do on it. it we have to map the zones, and we have to set an effective date. So I, I we're still months out from putting the new UDO into place and seeing how that works. Um, it'll be, it will be good to do the mapping, right? Um, we also have a housing study that's underway right now. 
right. should be looking at what we have, what we need, and and what will we will be needing housing-wise 10, 20 years from now. So it'll be interesting to see how the UDO starts to play out once it, we have our effective date and then what that housing study says we need and if the UDO is fulfilling those needs. Yeah, the housing study is by, being done by the HAND department. Is that right? In conjunction with the consulting company, yeah, they had a lot of public engagement uh, recently in work sessions. Yeah, and that, and that in, in my mind, doing the housing study – that may prompt us to reopen the UDO. Housing is a is a huge issue. But before we get to that, well, I guess we're sort of getting to that. But Kate, you were on. I think you called in on a show on the UDO mm-hmm. and on on the plexes. And Matt was on a show not too long ago about just climate change. And I think both of you campaigned on on issues of climate change. It, it seems like we have hit a a tipping point when it comes to climate change. And you know how. How are how's the council the new council? Do you think how how much are you going to look at all issues through this climate change lens? I mean, I think every decision about the built environment has a significant climate element, and that's a lot of what city council does. Uh, if you look at our recent greenhouse gas emissions report, uh, the overwhelming majority of emissions are I think it's twenty seven percent from transportation, and then another forty plus percent from buildings, commercial and residential buildings. So that's the type of emissions we're talking about in the Bloomington context. Uh, so when we talk about housing, I mean, it is true that smaller footprint homes, homes with attached walls, whether it's townhomes or a two- or three-family home on a small footprint, that that is sort of fundamentally more sustainable in the sense that it is smaller, uses less energy, allows more people to live close to where they work, close to where they go to restaurants. Uh, there are, you know, I won't get into too much more detail there. Uh, but same thing with transportation. We we have goals. This is cl- global climate change. Of course, we're not going to solve it here in Bloomington. But the nature of the problem in this crisis is it is a, a collective action problem. My position is that we have to do our part. And doing our part means trying to get to net zero emissions by the year 2050, just like the UN and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says we need to do to avoid you know catastrophic, um, even more catastrophic uh, impacts around the world and, and locally. So that's really where I'm approaching this from, is we need to try to get there. We need to set plans and make our decisions like we're trying to get there. And the more we set ambitious targets and, and pursue them in earnest, the more we can bring along uh, institutions like IU, uh, our peer cities around the state, bring along Duke Energy and help them uh, help them to, to work on things like uh, electric vehicle charging stations, for instance, and, and, and make sure that we're moving in a direction uh, where we all, pretty much everybody acknowledges we need to go. Uh, the, the challenge is we're not going there fast enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hey, we, we oh, Ron, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Ron. Sorry, we're really uh, it, you know it is a climate crisis, so so we are all pretty becoming pretty aware of that. Um, the the one word that always comes to my mind when we're when we speak about it is we do have to have a balance in the way we're governing um, at the city council level and the national level. We we do have to look that you can't turn out the lights and do climate change. So. How do we do all those at the same time while still addressing in a very serious way the climate crisis? And I find that that's, that's going to be a real challenge for us uh, at the city council level as well as nationally. Mm-hmm. Okay. When, I'd also like to point out climate decisions – are also decisions that go towards social and economic equity. So these things are definitely not mutually exclusive, and really 
they have a huge overlap. So as we look at building denser housing, right, we're looking at then more affordable housing prices for folks to get into neighborhoods where they might not be able to have gotten in if it was only single family homes. And when we talk about increasing our transit options and um, making more sidewalks and bus lanes and bike lanes, like that, it, that is also helping people live without cars or fewer cars. And so these things overlap so much and making one decision for the climate is also making a decision for everyone in Bloomington. Yes. Mm -hmm. You talk about the complexity of these issues and that seemed to be one of the uh, one of the issues when you were talking about the UDO was whether the plexes would be more affordable or whether developers would, would be able to come in. I mean, how do you how do you I don't want to reopen that whole debate, but there is a way to control that issue, right? I mean, at least do you think there's a way to control that issue? Right. So your question is how are plexes more affordable? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, and, and what would you say to the people that thought the plexes were going to be opened up to a developer buying a piece of property and then creating, you know, f- for high end or high high cost places for students to live? I can I'll speak to the affordability okay. part of that. So so new construction, of course, is always more expensive. But if you do look at building a new house on a lot versus building a duplex on a lot, you're going to be building a new house, say, in Prospect Hill, and that might sell for $400,000. If you build a duplex in that space, maybe that duplex will sell for two hundred each or two i am not saying that's affordable. I am saying it is cheaper than a single-family home that is the only thing you could build there right now. If you look at converting older homes into duplexes, I have a very old home. It's it's very small, about 900 square feet, two front doors, two back doors. You could, in theory, p- create two duplex, a duplex there, right? So right now, maybe I could rent my home for $1,300. If I made two one-bedroom duplexes, maybe I would rent those for $700 apiece. So that that is the affordability difference. Gotcha. Okay. I'm curious about just how complicated all of this becomes when you're talking about a college town, like people who maybe aren't as invested in the community. They're only here for a bit of time, even things talking about climate yeah, change. I, I, think, I think that's what has alarmed a lot of people is that there's developers, whether that's accurate or not, um, to a di- to different extents, a lot of people are afraid developers going to come in, build duplexes, Tear out old homes, and then they're going to be rented to people, um, and drive affordability the other the wrong direction. And whether that's accurate or not, for what would happen, um, I I I can't see into the future, so I I don't know the answer to that. But but I do understand why people are a little bit uh, concerned about that, and so. Um, it it is it's it's a complex issue. See, maybe you can weigh in a yeah. little bit. One of my former bosses, um, my colleagues have heard this story already, but uh, one of my former deans was an economist, and uh, a faculty member asked him once, "How would you solve all of our financial problems?" And I smiled at that question for one. Um, but he looked him right in the eye and he said, "The first thing I would do is tell you there are no solutions; there are only trade offs." And I think that puts a profound truth pretty succinctly. Um, I think that's what governing is. Governing is negotiating and navigating trade-offs. So as we think about plexes in a neighborhood, we also take time to ask, and, and the neighbors and our neighbors take time to ask, all right, what will this do to traffic? What will this do to density? What, how will we park cars if we have them? Um, 
what will my patterns of everyday life be like? Um, or how will this impact the, client, the environment in my neighborhood? I have kids. Are we going to have more traffic and foot traffic? What do we need to do? That's what we have to think about as council members is how to balance all of that. So, so to go back to kind of the, the original questions about whether you're going to reopen or not, it sounds like Kate said you, that it's been passed. You're going to monitor it, see, see whether it's working mm-hmm. in the way that, that the city or the people that passed it believed it would work. Is that fair? I, th- I think that's right. Yeah, the housing study is happening. Chapter 5 of the comprehensive plan actually directs us to, A, complete a housing study, B, perhaps develop a housing commission and develop a, a housing strategy based on that study and then proceed from there. And I think that's the process that will be used. And that reopens a really huge issue about housing and how do you provide mm-hmm. affordable housing. Forget, forget the plexus for a minute. I mean, what are other strategies that could be used to, to address, not solve, but address the affordable mm-hmm. housing issue? Uh, so our tools are limited, of course, and we've heard this throughout the UDO context. We can't do rent control. We cannot do what's called inclusionary zoning, which is when a development happens, you say you mandate that a certain percentage of units are affordable. We can do things with incentives. Uh, the new UDO, uh, as passed, um, does does create uh, sustainability and affordability incentives. We've done this with PUDs as well, planned unit developments, um, and and. Say if you're going to, you can build an extra story higher on this development if you include, you know, 15% affordable units. Uh, and so there's those type of tools. I do think it's important to to note that there's subsidized affordable housing, which will always be challenged in in having enough funding to to meet that need. But there's also market rate affordability. There there are folks who there are unit many units in Bloomington, uh, many of them older apartments or sometimes grandfathered duplexes or triplexes in in neighborhoods all over town that are some of the more affordable market rate units out there. So we need to make sure we're creating a housing ecosystem that has market rate affordability as well, as well as just adding enough supply to meet uh, the the housing needs of a growing community, because that's the thing. We are growing. And if you don't add housing stock to meet that growth, uh, it's it's like a cruel game of musical chairs where you're pricing out the lowest income people. And, and that's not equitable or fair either. People are priced out to other cities, other counties driving up their transportation costs, all the rest. So, so we, need, we do need housing to meet the growth in this city. Um, and that's honestly part of what, what, I mean, it's a supply and demand thing. It's part of what creates market rate affordability is having adequate supply. And Sue, this was part of your platform. Can you just talk about what you plan to do? Mm-hmm. I think um, affordable housing, I, I greatly admire my colleagues and their background on affordable housing, and I, I look to them for their expertise on this, too. Uh, the only thing I would add to the point, too, is that affordability for housing is not just a function of the price tag on that dwelling, on that building. It's a function of what's around it. So if a house happens to be five miles from the center of Bloomington, that requires a car, and that requires someone uh, that requires that we provide someone with a way to get back and forth to town or it requires that they have a car. Not everyone can afford a car. And so I think the infrastructure we provide around that becomes important. So beyond just prices, beyond just flexibility, I think we have an obligation, too, as a council, to think about what public transit's role in that is going to be, um, what infrastructure's role in that is going to be as well. And those are some of the challenges I think all of us look forward to taking on this year. Yeah, well said. Let's talk about the the old hospital site and what's going to happen there, because mm-hmm. that's certainly a part of this discussion. I think that's one of our biggest opportunities. Mm-hmm. I think that's very exciting. So what's going to happen this year with the old hospital site and even looking ahead and what's mm-hmm. your role? Kate, do you, that's in your district, you said? It, it is in my district. Um, I don't know exactly what is scheduled to happen this year. Sue, do you? 
Yeah, the hospital um, will remain on site. The, for those who don't know the regional, who if I don't think anyone's missed it, the Regional Academic Health Center is well under construction. Mm-hmm. Um, and the move from the existing hospital site to the new Regional Academic Health Center um, probably – 2022, beginning of 2022, right, right. it'll be ready for that move. When that happens, um, when we, we, the city, purchased the old hospital site, part of that agreement uh, is that IU Health would tear down the old hospital, do all the mitigation necessary for that site. One thing that would remain, or is currently the thinking that it would remain, is the parking garage on that site. Um, but that's a relatively huge chunk of land with proximity to downtown, proximity to the new Switchyard Park. Um, that I think, as we look ahead, that kind of presents one of our greatest opportunities for affordable housing. Uh, and that kind of infill is going to be really important. And there's yeah. a steering committee looking into a, a hospital redevelopment. Mm-hmm. Right. I think they still, correct me if I'm wrong, if you all know, we don't have a master planner yet no. for that. No, not yet. We, yeah. Right. So, I mean, there is um, a city group of residents that has recently organized, and they met earlier this month. Matt and I we're at that meeting where folks are really looking at what do we want to see here? What could we do that's maybe new and different in this space? And I think a lot of good ideas are coming out of that group. One one resident talked about what if we made a net zero neighborhood and what does that look like? And what does it look like if we make this very human centric instead of car centric? So maybe there are garages, but maybe there aren't streets in front of houses, but instead multi-use paths where you get everywhere in your neighborhood and a lot of green space and places for capturing water and just doing doing things in a different way so that we're good to the climate and good to equity and inclusion in the space that's almost that is basically a downtown neighborhood um so that's pretty exciting i think too um just one thing worth bringing up to one of the things the city has done over the last couple of years is try to strategically acquire properties that will border switchyard park so if you look at south walnut there are a number of properties there um that have been acquired and i think you know the city's goal when that those actually came through the rdc um our goal is not to keep that or be landlords or anything our goal is, is to essentially shape its development in the future and, and and so i think those that space provides a lot of opportunity for for the kind of affordable housing that we're talking about and i would say that the site is big but not huge right so it's not going to solve our housing problems and our housing needs i think we're looking at between 200 and 300 housing units there so it's just one small piece of the housing puzzle all right, we have about we have less than ten minutes to go. So if anybody has a question out there and you want to give us a call, eight one two eight five five zero eight one one, or toll free at one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. We'll try to slide those in. If you can give us a call, or you can send it to news at indianapublicmedia dot org. Uh, Sue, when we started out, you mentioned economic development and economic and economic development resilience, mm-hmm. economic resilience in the community. So I guess I want to ask all of you about you know how do you you know, the, the city's not going to create a bunch of jobs, but how do you create the environment? What would you want to do to create an environment where people want to have high-paying jobs for people? Sure. I think that's a great question. And um, a lot of folks know I, I, the issue is near and dear to me. I grew up in Gary, Indiana, and I've, I, in many ways I watched my hometown die, and in many ways it hasn't recovered. So seeing a city do well and thrive is important. Um, I think the Trades District is actually a good example. Um, this is the certified tech park in downtown Bloomington near City Hall. Um, 
basically, to oversimplify a little, that provides two things. First of all, it provides a co-work space in the Dimension Mill. Um, formerly Shower Brothers Furniture Factory has been repurposed and restored. If you haven't been in it, it's gorgeous. Um, please take some time to see how much how we repurpose the wood and everything for that. So it's a physical space for co-working and incubating companies that may only have one or two people. Um, on the horizon are discussions about the, cre- the repurposing of the kiln, um, also in the trades district. So one op- for, grad- for companies as they graduate out of um, the dimension mill, so part of the issue is space. Part of it is programming, too. Part of it is a collection of activities that allow entrepreneurs and people starting companies, people who have ideas to actually kind of collide with each other um, and do that. So I think those are two of the things I think that are in play as well. Okay, so. Ron, why go to you next? Economic development. I think that's. Okay. A re- I think it's really a challenge. We have three point two percent unemployment right now, and Bloomington is a pretty vibrant town and pretty vibrant economy. It's just lots of the jobs are service jobs, and they don't pay much. So how how do we change that? Um, and I think that's really a challenge. Um, in the past, there's been uh, encouragement for manufacturing to come here and um, helping with keep keeping Cook and Catalant and those companies viable in the area is very important. So encouraging more maybe uh, the biotech industry here seems like it's a natural fit for Bloomington. Um, how, how to exactly do that? I have to say I'm I'm new to the city council, so I'm not exactly sure what context how we c- we can do that. But those are the areas where I see would be really helpful. Old style manufacturing is pretty done, um, and the service industry is not it, it doesn't pay very well. So uh, I think the biotech industry is where we probably need to to keep our eyes open on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I actually, um, just like with housing, there there are a lot of tools in our toolkit, and we have to think about how to use those. Tax abatements are one example, and there was a recent tax abatement granted to Catalan. Um, Catalan created, I think, if I if memory serves, 120 new jobs with average salaries of in excess of fifty thousand. Yes. Um, huge investments in their physical plant and everything. Those are the kinds of things that tax abatements are meant to incentivize. Mm-hmm. So I think that's another tool we have that um, I don't think tax abatements should be always used, of course, And but there are certain kinds of growth we're trying to incentivize, mm-hmm. and I think we could use it strategically that way. All right. Kate. Agree. I think part of this is the quality of place and what attracts people to a place. And, I mean, talking about public transit, again, is something that sometimes gets left out of economic development and those considerations. So uh, good public transit is a strong indicator of a place where people want to live, work, and where businesses want to locate. So making sure we have a transit system that is viable, convenient, and attractive, easy to use, right, is really important for for residents, for commuters, and for businesses alike. I would also say taking a look at the Monroe County Quality of Place and Workforce Attraction Plan is really good here because that that really showed that folks, younger folks aren't really choosing to call Bloomington home and that people of color aren't feeling included here. And so it's like taking a look at that in ways that we can make this a more inclusive city where younger people want to live because younger people will be driving the workforce of today and tomorrow. So my last question is just to give you each an opportunity, about 30 seconds each because we only have two minutes. You know, you've got uh, 
thousands of constituents out there listening to you today. So, you know, what's something that they can expect from you in the next four years, Matt? Uh, I'll say one thing on my mind currently is that I think we need to set goals that are in line with the IPCC targets on climate change. That's net zero by 2050. And I think we should acknowledge the climate emergency through a resolution like the European Union and hundreds of other municipalities around the country and the world have done. So that's something I'll be working on in the near future. I also want to quickly mention I'm having my first constituent meeting on January 18th, noon to 1 p.m. at City Hall in the Hooker Conference Room. Would love to see you there. Please reach out anytime. I'm happy to meet with folks in person. All right. Thank you, Matt. Ron? I hope to be available and and around and say hi to people, see what they they think about what's going on in Bloomington and what we need to do. Uh, the one thing I'm still going to focus on is how does it affect how does it affect people and is this good for people? And I find that um, having conversations with people about the quality of life in Bloomington is a really great area to to speak about and. Um, probably the one thing that is uh, about there's a senior center that uh, expanded into College Mall. I want to make sure that we continue to fund that, and that is perhaps expanded over the years. Okay, Kate, thirty seconds. I think what people can expect from me is you know a lot of data driven decisions and research backed ideas. Um, just really thinking about climate change, equity, and inclusion in everything that I do, making sure that all of our – everything before city council really takes climate, equity, and inclusion into account. Okay. Thank you. Sue? Great. I think uh, my constituents can expect some accessibility from me. Uh, it's really important to me to have the a regular – opportunities for feedback from constituents. I had my first constituent meeting on Saturday, January 4th. Next is coming up on Saturday, February 1st. There'll be first Saturdays, 1.30 to 2.30, or as long as they go, um, in the McCloskey room at City Hall on the first floor. Okay, I we, think we're, we're out of time. Poof. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. That was Sue Scambolari, uh, city you. council member. And also we've had Kate Rosenbarger, Ron Smith, and Matt Flaherty, the four new city council members for the city of Bloomington. For producer Benta Boutier and engineer Mike Pashkash and Sarah Whitmire on Bob Zaltzberg, thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.